Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Your Nation to which we pay our respects. You might also be tuning in across the country courtesy of the Community Radio Network or listening via our podcast. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to be taking a closer look at how foreign correspondents have been covering the human rights crisis unfolding in Xinjiang, China. I say unfolding because while the tensions between the Uyghur Muslim ethnic minority and the Chinese state have a long history, in the past few years, the situation has deteriorated. The Uyghur people are being detained en masse without charge in what's being called re-education camps. The exact number of people in these camps and what goes on in there is unknown. However, the UN estimates there could be up to one million people held there. At the same time, an increase in policing and surveillance technology has clamped down on everything from where people can go to how they dress and perhaps most importantly, who they can communicate with. This, combined with various state media propaganda campaigns, has made reporting on Xinjiang an exceptional challenge for foreign journalists. Our next guest, Mega Rajagapalan, has the enviable title of World Correspondent for BuzzFeed, previously based in China. Her article, This is What a 21st Century Police State Looks Like, was based on reporting from Xinjiang and exile communities in Turkey, and it won her a 2018 Human Rights Press Award. We had a chat about some of the challenges of reporting on Xinjiang and how you balance the responsibility of reporting on what's happening with the fact that doing so can put both you and the people you speak to at great personal risk. I started out by asking how she first got into reporting on Xinjiang. So... I, w- I came to Beijing um, to work as a journalist first in 2012, and that was with Reuters. And sort of in that capacity as a political correspondent with Reuters, I looked at um, Xinjiang and all of the issues around it kind of on and off for, um, you know, four or five years. You know, that encompassed kind of all dimensions of the problems there, you know, everything from human rights to the problems with ethnic unrest terrorist attacks, um, you know, government policy, um, economic policy, all of that stuff. And um, I also, you know, I had backpacked there as a student. So I was I was pretty kind of familiar with a lot of the issues there. Um, and I really had a deep affection for the people who lived there because of, um, of the time I spent there traveling. And when I after I joined BuzzFeed, I sort of made up my mind that I, I wanted to do a piece on kind of the human rights situation there. Um, around like kind of early 2017, we started to hear that things had really deteriorated considerably. And, um, you know, there were sort of signals of that happening, like we had heard from people in the exile world, um, you know, there were kind of some local media reports and, and things like that. But it, it's just one of those things where you, um, you hear about stuff happening. And I just thought like, you know, access is so bad in Xinjiang, there's not actually that many journalists who cover it regularly. Like at that time, it's not like people, people, a lot of people now are taking trips, but like at that time it wasn't such a big story. So there were really only a handful of people that were, you know, pretty interested in it. So I thought, you know, if, if I don't, 
um, start to look at this, then, um, you know, there might not be that many other people who would be willing to take the time and resources to do it. Um, so that was in early 2017. That was sort of how I got started thinking about um, the kind of human rights dimension of the crisis. And then, of course, when I went, um, it just turned out to be a lot, um, a lot worse than I could have ever imagined. It was just like, like the the kind of um, human rights situation has had just like visibly deteriorated, like the kind of artifacts of mass surveillance were just everywhere. And um, you could sort of tell, um, you know, how much pressure people were under there. Could you maybe talk me through just briefly, um, kind of the history of relations between Xinjiang and China, and then why it's changed so recently? Yeah, sure. Okay, let me think about how far back to go here. <laughs> um, okay, so Xinjiang is um, basically it's this massive region in western China. It's in the northwest of China, right on the border of Central Asia. The population is about one half um, dominant Han Chinese minority. So the Han Chinese are the dominant ethnic group in China. And um, the other half is made up mostly of Turkic Muslims. So um, and the majority of that group is a group called the Uyghurs, which are a Muslim ethnic minority group, uh, majority Muslim. And I think there's something between like nine and 11 million of them. And it's basically been a part of the People's Republic of China, um, you know, since its founding. So there's been escalating violence. um, Right. And it's been credited to the growing separatist movement, a growing kind of terrorism. Okay, so yeah, so let me start talking about like, kind of like why, why relations, why, why the situation now is so bad. So like, basically, like the kind of the, the most recent history of the situation, like you can take it back pretty much as far as you want. But um, like I'll start at kind of 2009. So in 2009, there were these kinds of waves of ethnic riots. And um, it was really bad. It started in Urumqi, which is the capital of the region of Xinjiang. And, um, you know, hundreds of people were killed. Um, A lot of people of Han ethnicity were killed. um, And there's still a, a lot of anger about that period, like, you know, both from the government, as well as the kind of broader population of Han Chinese, not just in Xinjiang, but sort of all over China. And in response, that there was this kind of huge crackdown. Um, the government arrested, you know, hundreds of people, I think almost all Uyghur, um, you know, those people were punished, you know, a lot of people were even executed. Um, so after that happened, you know, there's sort of lots of stories about how that kind of first wave, the crackdown, um, you know, in the, in the last decade kind of changed people's lives. Like, you know, there were, um, advent of a lot more things like checkpoints, um, you know, a lot more kind of repressive measures taken on Uyghurs to sort of monitor, start start to monitor their lives and things like that. And then after that, you get to kind of the 2013-2014 period where there were basically a wave of knife and bomb attacks that um, the government has blamed on Uyghur militants. Now, the government has basically blamed a lot of these attacks on a group that it calls ETIM, or the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. So East Turkestan is the name that some Uyghurs will be will use for the region of Xinjiang. It's sort of their name, um, and their it, it sort of symbolizes their hope for an independent 
state, right, for some of these people. Um, so ETIM is not a group that has really been sort of acknowledged by any kind of like independent scholarship. Like people just do not agree on whether this group is kind of like even like a cohesive group, like where it's based or even if it even exists in, in that kind of form. But um, this notion of ETIM as a as like a movement that um, is has sort of like broad appeal in Xinjiang is sort of belongs to the Chinese government. Okay, so then you get to um, kind of the most recent history, which is starts when Chen Quanguo, um, who is basically the party boss of Xinjiang, he takes power in Xinjiang, um, comes to comes to power as as the party boss. Um, I believe in 2016, he had come from Tibet before that, which is, of course, another part of China that is has historically been under very heavy repression. So when Chen Quanguo arrives in Xinjiang, he puts into place sort of a whole bunch of new policies. So when I say that, I don't mean to imply that he's doing this unilaterally or that he has any sort of autonomy over this. This is clearly something that has been signed off on and um, probably, you know, encouraged. But after Chen Quanguo took power, the, the situ the, it's, what's true is that the situation in Xinjiang sort of deteriorated significantly from a human rights perspective. So one of the things that he did, just to give you an example, he implemented this um, tactic that you could call grid-style policing, which uh, was previously used in Tibet. It was, it's been used in other parts of China, too. But the notion is that you divide a city up into a grid. And for each square of that grid, you're going to have a certain amount of kind of police presence. So, so it could be, you know, officers. It could be these kinds of, like, mobile police vans. It could be little police kiosks. So, I mean, the result of that is the kind of density of the police presence is, like, very, very striking. It, it almost looks like you're, you're, you know, in an occupied uh, territory or in a war zone or sort of something like that. So that's sort of been one dimension of the crackdown. Um, the the second thing that goes along with that heavy-handed human policing is obviously, um, you know, the surveillance technology, which we can talk about further. And the third thing is um, the kind of growth of uh, the so-called political education centers or um, basically camps, like re-education camps. And the, the camps did exist before, but um, under Chen Quanguo, their use of them has expanded like very, very significantly, which has been documented by things like procurement records and um, satellite imagery. I definitely want to talk about surveillance tech, but let's just talk about how we know about the situation. So where is this yeah. information about the changes coming from? Yeah, so this is a really good question. So just to give you um, kind of a baseline, right? So there's lots of human rights crises in the world right now, unfortunately. Just take as an example, the drug war in the Philippines. Um, I'm just using this because I happen to cover it. So, you know, the issues in the Philippines are that basically you have kind of vigilante groups and police doing extrajudicial killings, just going out into the streets of Manila into like very poor neighborhoods and shooting people with impunity and taking their stuff and that sort of thing, right? So if you were a person who was trying to find out information about this crisis, right, whatever role that you might be in, you would have everything from like, you would have you have the journalists that are following the police around, you'd have the police themselves that are releasing statements, you would have social media, you would have the neighbors that are like coming out and taking pictures and taking videos and putting them up on Facebook, you would have Twitter, you would have the president's office, you would have human rights lawyers, you'd have civil society, you would have court records, like sort of all of these sources of information 
they come together to kind of create our perspective on this crisis. And that's kind of how the modern world works, right? Like the world that we live in, where we have access to the internet, and we sort of expect a certain level of access to the internet for um, lots of different kinds of people around the world. So in Xinjiang, none of that stuff exists, almost none of it. Um, and that has been really, really hard, I think, for those of us that are seeking to understand this crisis. And not, not just journalists, but people like researchers, academics, um, you know, activists and people like that. So how do we know what we do know? OK, so basically there's three sources of information. One is, I guess, interviews and exile accounts. Um, a lot of this stuff, not all of it, has been compiled by journalists. Exiles, they take a tremendous risk in speaking to us. And, um, you know, we're very, very grateful for that. Um, they're putting themselves and their families at risk. Um, but there are also problems with relying almost exclusively on exiles. For one thing, it's very difficult to corroborate those accounts without being able to go in yourself. You have to sort of find other ways to corroborate them. Um, you know, and the, the second thing is, it's really hard to leave Xinjiang right now. If you're a Uyghur, chances are the government has taken back your passport, right? So like if you don't have your passport, you probably can't leave. So that means that a lot of the people that we talk to, it's on a delay. Like they're people that sort of got out earlier before things were really bad, or they're people that have gotten out more recently, but they, um, they sort of have the means to just like give huge, huge bribes to officials and um, be able to leave, which sort of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything negative about their story, but it does mean that it's sort of a self-selected population. It's, it's a certain kind of population that's not necessarily representative of, um, you know, what Uyghurs at large are, are sort of going through. Um, the second source of information we have is basically official records. So that goes to things like government procurement records, um, hiring records, uh, some reports in sort of local uh, state controlled media about um, about the camps and like where the camps are and sort of stuff like that. And there are a number of researchers, including Adrian Zenz in Berlin and um, a guy named Sean Zhang in Canada, who have relied on um, stuff like this to to do interesting research. And that kind of stuff was very, very useful, I think, sort of um, until about the middle of this year. And then a lot of research sort of started to come out relying on procurement records and stuff like that. And then now I've noticed personally that access to those those records has become a little bit more difficult. Like I used to be able to go to those databases and like kind of look stuff up pretty freely. And then now it's like a lot of these databases have like new requirements, like they'll require like, um, you know, a Chinese based cell phone number or a form of ID, which may not necessarily, you know, you might not be able to use like right. a foreign ID or a passport. Right? So people okay, have clued then, onto it. Is that what you're saying? That people have figured out that's where the information is coming from and tried to lock that down? Yeah, I'm, that's what that's exactly what I'm saying. The government has figured out that's where the information is coming. And um, I mean, my guess is they've issued some kind of order to lock it down. Yeah. And then the third thing, just very quickly, is um, satellite data. So um, a lot of people now have used satellite data. Satellite data is great because no one can censor it, right? Like anyone can look at Google Earth. The Chinese government has no control over what's on Google Earth. The one thing that that's done for our understanding of the crisis is it's helped us sort of document historically like the growth of these camps um, and a lot of kind of journalists and researchers have been doing really great work on that but it sort of it helps you prove beyond a doubt that um, this camp system it is new it's growing and if it's growing what what does that tell you it tells you probably you know not only is it housing a lot of people but um, you know because of the nature of the growth because these buildings are sort of permanent 
very sturdy kind of facilities and not sort of tent camps or anything like that. It tells you that they have plans to keep putting people in and um, this issue is not going away anytime soon. How has what you've seen from, you know, exile accounts and these satellite data and these records, how has that contrasted to what you've been hearing from the state media? So state media, this is a really interesting question. So basically until August of this year, state media really hadn't said much of anything. So what happened in August of this year? Basically, the UN Commission on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination held a hearing. And this was a previously scheduled hearing that they hold for lots of countries, not just China. And um, they this time it was for China. And to everyone's surprise, this committee basically levied some very, very sharp criticism at the Chinese government, particularly over the Uyghur issue. They also um, raised this number of upwards of a million people being held in these internment camps. And that, unsurprisingly, led to a lot of headlines. It led to, like, governments, Western governments taking notice. Um, It sort of, in my opinion, it sort of um, lent some kind of credibility and authority to um, the kind of research on this issue that I think individual journalists and individual academics had sort of been unable to do. And I think as a direct result of that panel, Chinese state media sort of came up with this sort of propaganda push. And, um, you know, it started out by saying, well, no, this isn't happening at all, right? This, the, You guys all have this wrong. And then now it's sort of morphed into yes, you guys still have it wrong, but like even if you were right, this is really for their benefit, and these are education centers, they're not concentration camps. And basically, it's sort of a, a full-throated defense of, of the policies there. So does that contrast with the research? I mean, sort of, in that they're saying that it's it's not happening at the scale that it's happening, and I think the research based on satellite imagery and other sources, and uh, certainly based on the witness accounts, um, you know, suggests quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And what about um, you reporting it as a journalist? So what are some of the ways that, I mean, you mentioned earlier that there was like access issues to going to Xinjiang. So were you able to actually go there and see any of this? Yeah. um, So Xinjiang is not a place where you need a permit to go as a journalist. Um, There are other parts of China that are like that, like Tibet. But with Xinjiang, you can just fly in. You can take the trains and the buses and you can drive and whatever you want. But the issue there is that um, once you get there, for the most part, if you're a journalist, you're probably going to be met by police officers and then followed around by them. So the result of this is probably not to intimidate you as a foreign journalist, but to, um, you know, intimidate anybody who wants to cooperate. Um, and I should clarify, like when I'm speaking about the issues with for journalists there, I'm talking only about foreign journalists. If you're a local journalist, you probably you're not going to cover this issue at all because, first of all, there's no incentive for you to do it. And like, second of all, um, if you tried, you know, the kind of heavy arm of the censorship apparatus would come down to bear upon you. So, um, you know, for that reason, I, I, I'm not even going to discuss um, kind of what they face up against. Um, but I think for us um, as foreign journalists, because of this kind of issue of being followed and um, also of being detained uh, for several hours, which is sort of meant to prevent you from doing your job, it, it really um, hurts your ability to just go and talk to people there. Even kind of prearranged meetings are difficult if you're being followed. Certainly like talking to people on the street, like ordinary people, becomes very, very difficult. Um, 
for me personally, I did go. I went, um, it's, it's actually been a while now, like because I left China in March, but I went a few months before that. So I had, I had gone in um, kind of late fall 2017. I was detained very, very briefly. I was met by police officers at my hotel. But they, at that time, this wasn't a huge news story. You know, there weren't a lot of people really talking about it. Basically, they didn't really view me as that much of a threat is my assessment. Um, You know, I also don't, I don't work for like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal or CNN, which is probably what they perceive as being really threatening. I work for BuzzFeed. So I think probably for for some of those reasons, they, um, they chose not to follow me around. I also, um, you know, we we also have like little tips and techniques to get around some of the access problems. Like, you know, you check into your hotel very late at night, you leave um, super early in the morning. So like, I I think the next morning I left at 4am and just try to walk around for the rest of the day to avoid um, getting picked up by the police. Yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you navigate that the ethics of that? Like you said that a lot of the parade of being followed by police is mostly to intimidate people who might cooperate with you. Yeah. So how do you how do you navigate that knowing that you're there to speak to people but doing so puts them at risk? Okay, so I'll explain what I did and then I'll talk about some of the kind of broader perspectives on ethics. So for me like you know, at the time that I did that story, like, I think immediately before, like, we had heard stories about um, people who had gone in kind of earlier that year, and worked with people like fixers and drivers and stuff. And those people had been sent away to camps. And at that time, we were calling them like re-education centers, like we didn't really know what they were, I don't think, to the extent that we do now. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't want this to happen, like, I have to avoid this happening. And then, you know, absolutely no blame on the journalists that that happened to, because, I mean, there's no way that they could have known that things had gotten that bad, because that was sort of very early on. But I did know. So I sort of came up with this methodology that I was going to go to Turkey first, talk to exiles and do sort of the majority of like the substantive interviewing with exiles and then kind of come back and try to corroborate their stories in Xinjiang. Um, So that's sort of what I did. Um, It was honestly still really difficult talking to exiles because one of the things the government does is um, they punish the families of people that have gone abroad. They'll send them to camps or levy kind of other kinds of punishments on them. So of course, nobody wants that. So I think even people who are abroad um, at that time were very, very reluctant to talk to um, foreign journalists um, or really anybody. But I did manage to do it. I got a bunch of information, including, I think, the the location of one of the camps that I wanted to visit, you know, a bunch of other kind of information from personal stories that I wanted to kind of go to the settings of and then try to corroborate um, when I was in Xinjiang. So then after that, I went to Xinjiang and I spent most of that trip looking at kind of different aspects of the kind of mass surveillance architecture. And I did talk to a few people, but the conversations I had were pretty um, superficial. Like when I actually went to visit that camp that I had gotten the location of, you know, I I tried to talk to some people in the area. But and the thing is, like, it's very clear, like when people see that you are a foreigner, they like Uyghurs, they really want to talk to you because they want you to know what's going on, but they're afraid. So like, for instance, I was in this small business that was sort of in the vicinity of the camp. And um, I was like, 
trying to talk to the owner and I ended up spending like 30 minutes just sitting there like talking about nothing. And then he was like, okay, let me like walk you out and like, I'll give you directions to the next place you're going. And that was sort of his way of saying like, let's go out in the open and talk for like a few minutes, you know, rather than talk in my, in my place of work, which he thought, I think he thought was being eavesdropped on. Um, so you sort of take measures like that. I was not being followed. I should note at that time, but kind of on the broader ethical issues. I mean, this is a really hard question because if you take the most precautions, if your only priority is to, to keep people safe, you can't get the information out. Like that's just reality, right? Um, and I think it's that kind of mode of thinking that's led other reporters to go to Xinjiang and then talk to people and they'll name the sources in the story. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll read those stories and be like, well, what happened to that person? Like, you know, if that person appeared in like this very heavily circulated article, like, aren't they going to get blowback? But I mean, there's a notion of consent. Every journalist sort of makes this decision for themselves. Like, you know, do you believe that this person is genuinely consenting to being interviewed and, you know, put in a kind of American media publication? Do they know what that means? Do they know, um, you know, what that's what's going to happen to them um, if that happens? Right. Can I ask, have there been occasions where you've been talking to a source and realized that they're not kind of meeting that requirement that you like maybe yeah. they're not consenting? They don't understand the, the scope? Yeah. Oh, my God. All the time. All the time. And that happens in China quite a lot because um, of the Great Firewall. So people in China don't. First of all, most people don't speak English. And second of all, even if they did speak English, they can't access international media. So if you have never read international media, how could you possibly know what it means to be quoted in international media? You know, you don't know, like if your local police chief is going to be made aware of that and then end up detaining you, like you don't know if you're an exile, you don't know if it's going to have blowback on your family necessarily, if you're not that familiar with it. Like, I mean, I'm a person that errs on the side of caution. I tend towards just protecting sources and kind of, um, you know, giving up things like real name attribution and stuff like that. There are some people that lean the other way. And I think they're kind of, I don't want to speak for them, but their rationale for that is like, the most important thing is like this bigger picture of just getting the story out. Um, so like to me, like I would rather have a story out, but then not name the source, even if it sort of weakens the story, because I just feel like it has to be do no harm. You know, I don't, I don't even want to get into a situation where it's even possible that somebody could be arrested like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think do you think that foreign journalists reporting on Xinjiang are being dissuaded? Is there other ways that the states encouraging silence on this issue for foreign journalists as well as as journalists in China? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, like, think about this from, I mean, it's not all somebody calls you into a dark room and tells you, you better shut up about this. Like, I mean, there's some <laughs> of that, but it's actually a little bit more, I would say it's more insidious than that. Um, you know, so think about Okay, the news industry is not doing well right now. Okay, like budgets are being slashed across the board. And if you are going to a place like Xinjiang to report, think about the value proposition that you have to give your editor for that. Okay, like, first of all, it's expensive to get there. Like the flights are not cheap. Second of all, once you get there, you might not even be able to do any work. 
because somebody might be following you and you can't necessarily talk to anyone. Like I, I have friends that have taken trips to Xinjiang and been so afraid of getting someone into trouble that they brought back very, very little. And um, that can happen. So like, would you rather, if you're a journalist who has to cover all of China, this huge country, this complex country of billion plus people, are you going to go to a place where you don't even know if you're going to be able to work? Or are you going to go somewhere where you know you can achieve a story and bring back something that's going to make your editor happy? Probably the latter, right? So that's less true now than it was before, just because of the snowball effect. And like Xinjiang, the, the issues in Xinjiang have become like this big story that like nobody can ignore. But, you know, even then, like if you read closely a lot of the coverage, a lot of it has been datelined in places other than China, right? There has been a lot of good reporting out of Kazakhstan. There's been stuff in Turkey. Um, you know, there's a reason for that. It's because like access in Xinjiang is really bad. So that that's like one way that they dissuade us. Um, the second thing is kind of the standard techniques that they use to dissuade everyone from doing any reporting that they um, they don't like, which is um, basically pressure on the business sides of news organizations and pressure on visas. Yeah, because Al Jazeera right closed down their bureau in China. That was um that was uh almost ten years ago now. No, no, All maybe, right. maybe something like seven years or something like that. I have to go back and look, but yeah, that's right. And you uh, you're not reporting in China anymore. I'm not. I left in March. Um, the government declined to <laughs> declined to renew my visa. Um, but we're not very we're not clear on the reasoning behind that. Um. I will say, like, uh, so when I was in China, I was um, on the board of the Foreign Correspondence Club. And um, just because I was in that role, I was privy to a lot of um, the problems that different correspondents are, were having, um, you know, with things like visas and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's a very common experience to get detained in Xinjiang, first of all, as I've mentioned. And then a lot of people also got blowback for coverage. That's usually called in colloquial Chinese, like um, being taken out to tea. So they'll, they'll ask you to go out to tea, and um, they'll be like, "Well, you did a very bad thing. You shouldn't have. You shouldn't have written this or that." So I mean, that kind of stuff happens too. I actually don't necessarily think that doing that really dissuades anyone from doing anything, just because. I mean, it's it's a bit of a it's uncomfortable, but surely for a journalist, you would be thinking, "Okay, I must be reporting on the right thing then." I think probably, yeah, probably a lot of people would, would think about it that way. Um, but I mean, the, I think the bigger issues are, are things like uh, just like economic pressure and visas. Yeah, yeah. And look, I you've said you don't want to speculate. Um, other media organizations have speculated on your behalf that it might have had something to do with how high profile your reports into Xinjiang were. So are you still reporting on what's happening now? Yeah, I'm certainly trying to. I mean, I have a couple of stories um, sort of in the works, although I think they will probably take a while to come out um, just because of the there's there's still sort of work to be done on them. But um, I do think that this is an example of a story where you can garner a certain amount of information without being there. Obviously, it would be better to be there as a journalist. But between things like satellite records and um, the XL community, which has become, you know, just a lot more willing to talk to journalists. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of work that can still be done on it. And like, I, to be honest, I've gotten kind of just really emotionally linked to this story. Like, I think once you spend that much time on it, it's really impossible not to feel pretty acutely about it. And it's not really something that I want to stop reporting on. At the end of the day, there aren't that many foreign correspondents 
in the world anymore. And um, that includes China. There's not that many, right? I mean, and the ones that there are, they, they're covering, again, the whole country. So I do think that there is a, a certain, certain amount of responsibility on those of us who um, have reported on it. And, um, you know, for those uh, to keep following this issue, just because at least to the current date, it's, it's not gotten any better. And I think it's gonna keep being a, a pretty urgent thing. That was BuzzFeed world correspondent Mega Rajagopalan talking about what it's like to report on the human rights crisis in Xinjiang from under the dome of Chinese surveillance. And that is all for Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with the latest episodes. And while you're there, leave us a review. It's one way that you can support both us and community radio at the same time. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, I'm Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening.